0: This week on the Backtable Podcast. There's monetary success and there's academic success. So I think it's somewhat of a challenge to do both 100%, but you can do it. I mean, you can be very busy clinically and productive clinically, and at the same time, be very productive academically. But you've got to, at some point, I think, move away from the basic research lab into the clinical research environment. I don't see how you can go back to the lab, dabble around and then come back and see patients. I mean, it's just, I think starting out, you can do it for a couple of years, but I, I don't know how you continue doing it as the years go by.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is brought to you by Veracyte, provider of the Decipher Prostate Genomic Classifier. Decipher Prostate is a test for patients with localized prostate cancer that can help personalize treatment. Every patient and their prostate cancer is unique, and Decipher Prostate can provide meaningful insight into the aggressiveness of each individual's patient's tumor because the decipher score is derived solely from the genomic characteristics of the tumor it provides information not available through already known clinical and pathologic factors decipher high-risk patients generally benefit from earlier or intensified treatment while decipher low-risk patients may be ideal candidates for monitoring or less overall treatment decipher prostate is the most validated gene expression test in localized prostate cancer with level 1 evidence in national clinical practice guidelines and more than 70 peer-reviewed publications including more than 65,000 patients. Visit verisite.com decipher to learn more. Now, back to the show.
2: Today, I'm the guest interviewer. My name is Mike Shea. I'm a urologist at UC San Diego and the guest host for today's episode. I'm very excited and honored for the opportunity to interview today's guest, my mentor, Dr. Larry Lipschulz. Welcome, Dr. Lipschultz. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for doing this. So you're a man that uh, doesn't need much introduction, but I'll do my best to introduce you. Dr. Lipschel is currently the professor of urology at Baylor College of Medicine. He's the Lester and Sue Smith Endowed Chair in Reproductive Medicine and Chief of Division of Male Reproductive Medicine and Surgery. In Dr. Lipschel's career, he has trained over 120 fellows, five urology chairs across six countries. I always tell my own residents and trainees that none of us will be here without somebody helping us along the way. We all have mentors throughout our careers and Dr. Lipschel certainly has made an impact in my career. I wouldn't be here today without you. And most of us chose to pursue academic medicine to really pay it forward with our trainees. So in today's episode, I would love to hear a little bit about your story, Dr. Lipschulz, and this is meant for us to even though I already know you for our audience, get to know you a little bit better and want to inspire you to go into medicine. So please. So I,
0: I went to Franklin and Marshall college. I applied, I remember to Harvard and Princeton and had no backup schools. I remember we used to have backup schools. So I think Franklin and Marshall was basically my backup school. At the time it was an all men's college, now it's co-ed. It was about 60 miles from Philadelphia. So just far enough from family where you felt like you were away, but not too far where you couldn't come back if you needed to. And I uh, majored in biology as most of us did in the day. And I must say I had a very good education. I mean, because there was nothing else to do at Franklin or Marshall. So <laughs> we all had good educations so and we would leave on weekends, And go to girls' schools. We would go to uh, University of Pennsylvania to date people there, or colleges on the outskirts of Philadelphia, like Bryn Mawr. And uh, I met my wife at the University of Pennsylvania when I was picking up another date, and ran into a high school friend of mine who was going out with Barbara. And I met her at that time, and then asked her out. And uh, as they say, the rest was history. I was then a junior or senior in uh, Franklin and Marshall, and she was an undergraduate at Penn, and I had to apply to medical school at that point, so I remember she went with me to Columbia, and I got in the next day. I guess they had a rolling acceptance in those days, and then I applied to Penn, which was much more to her liking, and so I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania for medical school and then stayed on for my residency. So, that's a little bit about my educational background. So, have you always thought about surgery or is there other fields in medicine that inspire you? So, I was the type of medical student who wanted to be career wise on whatever service I was rotating. <laughs> so, I was on pediatrics. I, I wanted to be a pediatrician. In psychiatry, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. But I ended up in urology because in the summer, I wanted a job while I was in college and I got assigned. And I applied to the University of Pennsylvania. They had a job in the Department of Surgery. And I got assigned to a young urologist by the name of Joe Courier. Now, I did not know what urology was at the time, but I got a job working in the surgery lab. We were looking at radioactive bacteria-sized colloid particles. And we were looking at how to monitor reflux using a then very new radionuclide scanner. And uh, so I did this. I put these particles in dogs and in rabbits, and started learning about urology, and decided to go into urology ultimately because of Joe, because he was kind of my mentor. He was the person that I looked up to and I wanted to be just like him. And that's how I ended up in urology. Yeah, we will go back to Dr. Joe in
2: a little bit, because I think he was fairly influential in you going to Texas as well. So I read somewhere that you got inspired into male
0: infertility based on your experience at UPenn, right? Kind of. No, that's true, but it wasn't in urology. I was an intern rotating on OBGYN and uh, that we would have grand rounds the way we do now in all our specialties. And they had a grand rounds with a PhD from New York. Uh, his name was Dr. McLeod, whose area of interest was sperm. So he gave this talk about sperm physiology and sperm counts, etc., which was very interesting. And at the end, the head of OBGYN, Luigi Mastriani, who was very interested in developing IVF, and at the time, he, he stated that, you know, in this grand rounds he said, gee, it was really unfortunate that we're getting so busy and creative in OBGYN, but we just don't have any urologists to help us with the male patient. So, you know, a light bulb went off in my head, and I decided, wow, if there's nobody doing it, this certainly would be a great area to get into. So... The next year was my first year in urology and uh, our second year was a research year. So in my research year, I spent the year learning about male infertility. And that was it. That's where it began. Yeah. I think for me, obviously in today's
2: training, we have the luxury of having fellowships and mentors along the way. And I understand that you pay for your own way to go to a course in Washington, DC
0: to get more exposure. Tell us yes. more about that, please. I don't, I don't know who you've been talking to, but indeed that's true. I thought, we, well, you know, one of the good ways to learn about uh, more detail of male reproduction was to take a course. And they were giving an AUA, a course It was actually the American Fertility Society, which is now the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, or ASRM. And they were giving a course in Washington. There were three speakers. Dick Sherins was one of them who was an endocrinologist. The other two were Pat Walsh and Stu Howards. I mean, for most of you who don't know this, Pat Walsh, although later became known for prostate cancer, actually started out in male reproduction. So he, he was giving this course with Stu Howards and I sat there for the day and uh, learned as much as I could and then went back to Penn and continued in my research year. And, and I started seeing patients. Alan Ween then became a member of the faculty and I would see patients one day a week then on every other week, I could admit them for surgery under Allen. So by the time I was a chief resident, I had my own practice. It was very, very, uh, you know, it was mind-boggling. Because remember now, nobody else was doing this in Philadelphia. There were two people doing it in New York, kind of, but it was very much private practice and not academics. I actually had a lab. We were doing research. The residents were starting to get interested. And, you know, the field was just... In its infancy. And then you had to take a break, right? Because you got called up to the military service. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, I I had signed up to go in the army if they needed me as part of a way to stay in my residency and not be called out when I didn't want to be. And lo and behold, I got called out because they needed a partially trained urologist in El Paso because it was a teaching hospital, William Beaumont Teaching Hospital. And the fellow who was there had quit. So they needed to fill this gap, they needed a partially trained urologist, and I was the only one they had. So I ended up going there for the next two years. So what was it
2: like as a senior resident, you know, running your own service? And I guess you had some
0: experience, you were already seeing patients independently. I, I did, but I, you go in as a major, and then for a year, another year to the date, when you graduated medical school, you become a, a major. So here I was a major, in the army, not knowing anything about the military, but I did know what I liked to do. And in the army, they did not have any facility or way of taking care of men with reproductive problems. So I started a semen analysis laboratory in this William Beaumont Army Hospital and linked up with the head of OBGYN and I started seeing infertility patients. So I kept going, I mean, I didn't just stop for two years. So it was very good for me to do this write a little bit, and you I know, could still do some research. And then I had to go back to Penn to finish my residency. So I ended up finishing the whole thing two years after I got out of the army.
2: Yeah. So then how did you choose fellowships in an era there was no fellowships to, to further your studies?
0: I didn't do a fellowship. No, I did. So at the time, the AUA was just starting. You're the urology, I recall, AUA scholars which is now the Urology Care Foundation Scholars. But this was then called AUA Scholars. And I applied for the first fellowship and I got it. And by that time, Joe Courier, who we mentioned before as my summer mentor, and who, you know, stuck with me through residency, had moved to Texas to be head of the new uh, urology department at the University of Texas in Houston. So he said, listen, why don't you come down here? There's a man running a Department of Reproductive Medicine. He's an endocrinologist, but he's extremely creative and very bright. Why don't you write a fellowship application to the AUA using this man as your basic science mentor? It had to be a basic science fellowship. So I applied and I got it. So I went to Houston ostensibly for two years to do this fellowship, and I never left. So I'm, I've been here ever since. Now, we will not give you any dates.
2: So the audience will not be able to do the math on how long you've been there.
0: Right. No math.
2: I was 15 when I went there. Don't forget. <laughs> so this is in the lab of Dr. Emil Steinberger, correct? Right, right. So tell us a little bit more about the
0: pink slip incident. When kn- I don't understand how you know all this. Listen, I don't- listen. <laughs> a
2: good interviewer do our
0: research. Yeah. It's just you, had a det- you hired a detective. So anyway, I was with Emil, who was a very, very strict Russian slash Germanic type who felt that fellows should be fellows in the very basic sense of the word. And of course, I was already an assistant professor of urology, and I was allowed to see patients one day a week. And when the other gynecologist in town found out that I had this interest in male infertility, I started getting all these referrals clinically. And Emil did not like that I was getting clinically active more so than he was. Also, I would go to meetings and not ask permission. I really, in retrospect, I was not a good fellow. But anyway, so one day towards the end of my first year, I'd come to work in the morning to his research laboratory where I was working on Sertoli cells. And uh, there was a pink slip, a literally classic pink slip in my mailbox. Telling me that he no longer could be my mentor because I was too independent and I didn't listen to him. So I had to think fast. I mean, what am I going to do? I had another year to go. I needed another mentor. So I went over to Baylor to the Department of Cell Biology, which was being run by a man by the name of Burr O'Malley, who was very famous in basic research at the time in, in receptor physiology. And I met with one of his younger professors, Roy Smith, who said that he, you know, he had somebody he thought he could link me up with, and his name was Jim Norris, with an N like Nancy, Jim Norris, and uh, his expertise was cell cultures. So I decided, look, you know, I was doing at the time, as an aside, a lot of transsexual surgery, only men to females, and they were all highly estrogenized, and consequently, they had Sertoli cell-only testicles. So when their testicles came out as part of their surgery, We would culture them in Jim's lab and that became the first human Sertoli cell culture because we were looking for a way to evaluate Sertoli cells with a unique marker. And we went on to publish this, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it was a great time for me because I got my first taste of Baylor medicine of a private university. And a couple of years later, when I had become maximally promoted at UT, Joe said, if you want to go to Baylor, no hard feelings, might be a good move for you. And they wanted me at Baylor. So I went over to Baylor with Gene Carlton. Yeah. Going back to your fellowship, I think a lot of us,
2: you know, you're the first AUA scholar. You know, we really want to promote physician scientists, take it from bench to bedside, you know, translational research. But as you see, it's really hard to do both jobs well. What do you see as some of the lesson learned from your fellowship experience, trying to balance a basic science research project along with a busy clinical practice?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think what you have to do is come up with a weekly schedule that's gonna work for you and your department. And mine was basically, you know, two days in the lab, three days seeing patients. And then, you know, I did, I did I get funded. I did get a, a, a research technician who was quite good. And, you know, that makes it doable. And for those fellows who came here, of which there have been many, and did a two-year basic research fellowship, they would spend four days in the lab and one day with me. But they were here for two years. So it did work out well. And all of our future department chairmen were those who did these two-year fellowships, interesting enough. Yeah. So um, let's go back a little bit to Dr. Joe
2: Currier um, when you were at UT. You guys did a lot of trailblazing stuff in the state of Texas, transgender surgery, vasovasostomy. So tell us a little
0: bit, what was it like when you guys were doing those surgeries? What were the environment like? Well, it was very supportive because everybody was so interested in what we were doing because nobody else was doing it. And certainly that included the transgender surgery. I guess was kind of groundbreaking because we did 70 of them before we kind of slowed down and did it only once in a while, but we did every month we did one we got you know very good at it. it the way it worked was when i got here joe had done one and he said look you know i don't want to do these anymore why don't you start doing them so you know the next one that came along we got out this textbook that had somebody's procedure in it looked at the procedure how they did it and then kind of adapted it as the months went by to one that worked for us but it was kind of feel as you go and the same thing interestingly enough was for vasovasostomies, because Joe had one to do, and he came to me and said, listen, I'm supposed to do this vasectomy reversal. I don't know how to do it. Will you do it? I said, sure, I'll do it, you know. So I got my resident and we um, read a chapter, which was available on a uh, microscopic technique. And uh, actually the first one we did was not microscopic. The first one was with loops. We then progressed into using the microscope because it was so much easier. But uh, the first one worked very well. I mean, I still see the woman who, husband I operated on. Oh, wow. Uh, She still comes to visit. I know. It's amazing, right? Well, it wasn't that long ago, Mike. (laughs) Of course. Just (laughs) last last year. Last year.
2: (laughs) So, yeah. So if the loop was working so well, obviously, what prompts you to pursue microscopic approach? And it is still parts of the country today, people are still doing what we consider microsurgery procedures
0: in using loops, right? Well, you know, once you use a loop and you start doing these procedures, you realize it's extremely uncomfortable because you have to keep your head rigid so that you don't go in and out of your focal length. I decided I wanted to try a microscope, and I did, and I thought it was easier. So I just started using the microscope. But, you know, it was teaching yourself as you went because there wasn't any way to learn it. There was nobody teaching it. So you kind of self-taught and then you taught others and kind of that's how the whole thing got started. Obviously
2: then you move on from UT to Baylor. Was it a tough decision to move with having Dr. Currier there you know, as your mentor and then you have to move on or what was it like to move across town?
0: Well, I mean, at the time I was very friendly with Peter Scardino and Peter Scardino had come to Baylor from UCLA and we were friends and we played tennis together. And so he talked me into considering moving over. And then Joe said, sure, why not? I mean, you know, you've done a lot here, but you've been here and you know, time to see some other places. And the two schools had a very good relationship. But my first fellow was actually while I was at the University of Texas. It was a guy named Sec Chan from British Columbia, who was a chief resident there with Marty McLaughlin. And Marty... And I were friendly, and he said, listen, you know, I really don't have enough vasectomy reversal and microsurgeries for this guy, but he's really good. Can you take him? I don't remember thinking back whether it was six months or a year, but we did it and developed kind of a teaching program for microsurgery at the time. And then Sec went on to practice in California, and then we started yearly fellowships after that. Yeah, so have you always considered academic
2: medicine for your career, or was there any other time you thought, maybe I is better
0: off in a private practice, grass is greener on either other side? That's a good question, because in all honesty, I never planned anything. I was a very poor planner. So the fact that Joe Courier said, why don't you come down here and do the AUA Scholar? And then I stayed on. There were things that happened. They weren't things that I planned. It wasn't like a big career choice. I just did it. Kind of like the train was moving and I just got on the train. And I ended up in Texas. I ended up doing research. I ended up getting the AUA scholar. And then when I moved to Baylor, it was just kind of a natural movement. It was the same medical center. It wasn't. I didn't move my house. It was very comfortable. The people were very you know, nice and supportive. And so I didn't plan, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make this move. And I know I deal with a lot of fellows who are planning what are they going to do next year, where they're going to go. And I just didn't plan much. I was very fortunate in that the decisions that were kind of made for me and with me were the right decisions for me. So in terms of, did I ever think about going private practice? I just didn't think about it. But you must realize having been here in Texas that what we do is really private practice. Yeah, it's. I think what I learned a lot in my fellowship with you is
2: how to be efficient is how to deliver the best quality and all these things translates in both in private practice and in academic setting right and i think what are your thoughts obviously you've been academic for a long time we've gone from a salary model to an rvu model and productivities and like you said it's really not that different what we do to be successful in academic setting
0: well i mean it it depends how you want to define success there's monetary success and there's academic success. So I think it's somewhat of a challenge to do both 100%, but you can do it. I mean, you can be very busy clinically and productive clinically, and at the same time, be very productive academically, but you've got to, at some point, I think, move away from the basic research lab into the clinical research environment, because you can't, I don't see how you can go back to the lab dabble around and then come back and see patients. I mean, it's just, I think starting out, you can do it for a couple of years, but I I don't know how you continue doing it as the years go by. So you have to redefine your academic goals. I agree. I think, you know, as somebody, this is my
2: 10th year in practice and that, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's right. You know, there's only so much time in a day and time in a week. And in an era of work-life balance. You know, We talk about that a lot in physician burnouts, and I think sometimes we do try to overextend ourselves. How do you set the goals that you wanna do at early, mid-career, and even at this phase of your career?
0: I didn't set a lot of goals. I mean, the goals kind of came with growing older and doing different things, but I, I really didn't plan in terms of a lot of goals. Again, I was very fortunate. I had a lot of good mentors. Joe Courier, as we talked about. I had Peter Scardino over here at Baylor, Gene Carlton, a lot of really good people who helped me along the way. I think one of the things is if you're a chairman, is to make sure your junior faculty get exposure, meet people, uh, know what's available for them. People did that for me. And I think if you have junior faculty who you're responsible for, that's your chief responsibility is to see that they meet the right people and go to the right meetings and know when they're supposed to get abstracts due and kind of be a leader for them in that way? No, I think that's great advice because I took on a junior
2: partner last year, as you know, and I think I'm trying to transition my role from the mentee to a mentor. And I think that's really, really great advice. I think we can all use it. And I still need to be a mentor. I enjoy being being a mentor and also being a mentee, you know? So who do you still talk to, to bounce ideas off
0: beyond us, your fellows? Well, I mean, I really think it's my fellows. You have to remember now my fellows go out and many of them go to academic positions. So talking to them is talking to a peer. It's not talking to a fellow anymore because they're no longer fellows. So I heard from two of my fellows yesterday, asked me about some cases, we talk about what they're doing, their new practices. That's how I learn things and you know we do projects together. I think that's one of the beautiful things about having all these fellows out there. I mean, it really is a very much of an extended family. Now some of them disappear. Some of my fellows have totally disappeared, right? But the other ones, like you and I, I and mean, we stay in touch and you know if it weren't today we would probably talk about something in the next couple of weeks, uh, unrelated to this program, but, you know, you stay in touch with your fellows. Yeah. I think
2: that's one of the most unexpected part of the fellowship. I knew that I signed up to learn about microsurgery, male reproductive medicine, penile prosthetic surgery, but I definitely did not expect to be part of this family, the Baylor family, the former lipschitz family. And as you know, we have certain reputation, we all dress certain way. We all eat (laughs) at certain restaurants. We all, you know, but with that said, I think it's a, it's a family that we all look out for each other. And I think I'm, I will always have that connection beyond just our annual fellows dinner. We still talk and we send our residents to each other for fellowships and do research project stickers, like you said, you know, so I think that for me, it's continued to be very rewarding to be part of the fellowship, even though I graduated a long time ago, I'm one of the older guys these days.
0: Now you're hardly one of the older guys, but I mean, if you look at what's happened, a lot of the fellows, when they leave, have formed a very, very close friendship. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And you know, it's kind of nice to go back to a meeting and see the two of them still hanging around together and you realize that you were instrumental in helping these two people form a very good relationship over the years.
2: Yeah. Would you consider the fellowship one of your
0: proudest moments or achievements in your career? I think so. As you pointed out, because you are producing actual physician scientists who go out and whether they're in private practice or whether they're in hundred percent academics, nonetheless, they're very productive. And, you know, that's kind of the goal of most educators is to train people to go out and be productive. And, you know, I think the fellowship has worked out very well. I don't know that much about other fellowships. I know some things about them, but ours just developed into a very worthwhile educational situation. You know, I must say Baylor has been supportive in allowing me to do this because it does take a department which allows you to do your own thing uh, and not be bound by a lot of university rules and regulations. Yeah, no. And then you're still interviewing. So, you know,
2: for the, listeners who's applying for fellowships, Dr. Lipschus, right. you're interviewing for fellows two years from now, so the legacy will continue. So I kind of want to move on a little bit about what your thoughts on the current state of men's health. We see a lot of online direct-to-consumer marketings. Do you think this is good or bad since you've kind of seen various versions of this throughout your career?
0: Right. So when you talk about men's health, we're talking primarily, in my opinion, about male infertility, erectile dysfunction, and Testosterone deficiency in men. Those are the three areas. And some of them, as you said, we see very highly touted and getting a platform from the media. And certainly that would be low testosterone. That's become, you know, the media's stepchild with all these low T clinics. I don't know what it's like in California, but in Texas, it's just crazy. I mean, they're, they're just all over the place and they're basically storefronts for mid-levels to give out testosterone. There's not a lot of thought involved in terms of medical care, creativity, making sure everything is properly followed, and it's just a, a machine. And I think that gives the whole field a bad name. When you ask what I think of it, I don't like it. I mean, you know, I just, I just think it's, it's people getting into medicine for the purpose of making money and not taking care of people. That I think's gotten a bad direction from the media. Yeah,
2: I agree. I think most of us trying to do the right thing, but I do think there is this kind of a connotation about low T, about testosterone performance enhancement, and there's all these anti-aging and low T shops at strip malls
0: that really blur the lines of legitimate medicine versus almost predatory. I want to go on record as saying, I don't believe these life extension clinics or these longevity clinics are doing anything positive. The mantra should be, we're going to help men live better, healthier lives, but we're not going to promise longer lives. Because if it's not in your genes, it's not in your genes. You know, I don't care what you do. No, seriously, I mean, one of my uh, colleagues sent me an article about a 45-year-old Man from surprise, surprise, California, who is spending multiple millions a year from his startup company that he made a fortune with in trying to prolong his life. He's got 25 doctors who work for him, either part time or full time, developing these things to help him live longer. And you know, if his grandfather died when he was 70 or 50, this man does not have much of a chance of going a whole lot longer. He's not gonna hear this, but I mean, if somebody knows him, tell him to save his money, give it to academic institutions. Totally, totally agree, 100%. We're always looking for philanthropy. Exactly, so that's my take on low T. But I I do think that testosterone is a very, very important medicine. And I think in years, we're gonna be using it to actually treat problems. And not just use it as a so-called therapy to make your testosterone normal. Because I don't think really we think what normal is. And I think it's going to become the same thing as maybe prednisone, steroids. And that they're going to find that it helps other things. I mean, just this year, we looked at men who had falls. And we found out that people going to the emergency room with falls have a much higher incidence of low testosterone. And I think it's things like that, that you're going to find out that it has a role and treating other things. But I don't want to say any more about testosterone. I mean, it's just it's one part of our male reproductive medicine bag.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about infertility. As you kind of mentioned before, you were inspired because there were so much more works being done on the OBGYN side, and we're pretty much playing catch up a lot of times. Do you think there will ever be a time when we will actually be able to achieve the balanced fertility evaluation that we advocate for all the time where the male partner isn't ignored uh, as compared
0: to the female partners? Do I think there'll come a time? Well, it depends what we do as urologists with with our specialty. I don't think it's gonna happen if you sit back and let the chips fall where they want to because right now, as you well know, we're not seeing the male patients worse than ever. So it got good got great for a couple years. And then along came ICSI. And now with the REI's ability to put a single sperm into an egg and get a pregnancy, that's first line of therapy for male infertility now. If you look at the literature and if you keep your ears open and eyes open to see what's going on, you realize that people have shown that male infertility is a metric of men's health. It's not just a treatment to have a baby. If you look at the work that that Mike Eisenberg's done, looking at all the problems that infertile men have in greater statistical significance than non-infertile men, like cancer and just general health issues and even mortality, uh, you realize that men should be seen, men should have their own doctors. And we're giving them the ability to do that, but they're being held back by their own lack of concern for their health, which I think is getting better, but also because once they go to the gynecologist to have a baby, it's maybe one out of 10 that's referred to us, something like that.
2: Yeah, so do you find that previously before ICSI, our relationship
0: as reproductive urologist was better with the REIs? Well, it was different. I don't think better is the word. I mean, we saw almost all the patients because they couldn't offer anything. So if you had a man who had impaired semen quality, they sent him to the reproductive urologist, to get their opinion, is there anything you can do? Can you help us here? But now it's, let us put this couple through two or three IVF cycles. And then when they fail and have no money left and they're at their wits end, we'll send them back to you. And I'm sure that's what you see, because that's what we see. Yeah, I know that
2: would just be a running joke when we're fellow, when, when a couple had run out of money from IVF, then they show right. in up our, in our clinic for their seals, right?
0: But it's gotten worse. I think it's gotten worse. So what do you think we should do to try to get that back? I think you should open your own IVF clinic. I'm not. No, don't laugh. I'm very serious. I think urologists should run IVF clinics focusing on men with reproductive health issues. Because yes, we would be able to hire a couple REIs and run as good a program as anybody else. But on the other hand, we'd also be able to afford them the ability to have a thorough male evaluation and and then identify a male reproductive physician for their rest of their life. Now, you must admit that it would be a good idea to do this, that there's no reason not to do it. It's just that a lot of people aren't doing it. What do you think about the urologist who joins an IVF practice? Well, I think it's definitely an interesting model
2: and that we obviously know there had to be a certain volume of IVF, REIs to be able to support a male reproductive urologist. But you're right. And the models that I've seen, it's very balanced. There's all the interests are aligned. When a patient has a long history of vasectomy, they get a very balanced discussion. Instead of one group trying to sell vasectomy reversal, the other one trying to sell IVF. So I do think having both sides of our interests aligned, is probably what's best for the patients.
0: And luckily, we have enough fellows under your fellowship that maybe
2: we can just form
0: a group, right? No, I mean, yes. But but I do think that there would be a role for IVF programs focusing on men with problems rather than just women with problems. Half the time, the man's going to have some contributory issue. And I think also, when you look at your total practice, the most interesting thing you do is infertility. It's the most scientifically brain-wise challenging. You know, it's not a mental battle to treat the men with low testosterone or erectile dysfunction. But it is when you see the man who's not making a lot of sperm. So I think it's fascinating. And, and my fellows would agree, I'm sure, when the day is over and we talk about interesting cases, it's primarily the infertile patients that we saw that day. Yeah, I remember you used to mention it to be almost like
2: solving a puzzle. You know, whenever we see it in infertile couple, it is like a puzzle we're trying to solve. It is. It's very much. And I remember getting the very first baby announcement card when I go into practice. And, you know, maybe as a parent now, I appreciate that a lot more before I had kids. But that's definitely the most rewarding part of what we do. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, We won't say how long. So what still keep you motivated going to work every day? Because a lot of people would have just gave it up already.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's just self-fulfilling and interesting. I still feel like in some way I'm contributing. So if I didn't feel like I was contributing, I would stay home, pick up my tennis again. You can still pick up your tennis while you're still working.
2: I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And obviously... As you can see, sometimes the attitude to our healthcare or our profession is sometimes at all-time low. So what are some of the things that you're still optimistic about our feel
0: for the future? Well, I'm optimistic that there's really smart guys still going into it. Every year, we get really good applicants, probably the smarter guys in the class and the residency programs often. And I don't do just in infertility. You know, you well know. I mean, we do erectile dysfunction. We, we like doing prosthetics. We have our patients develop other problems. I think the one thing you can't forget is that if you have a large group of male patients, they are going to get BPH. Uh, they are going to get issues. They are going to get stone disease. And we tend to treat our own patients to some degree. You know, we, we refer, I've got a, a multi-specialty group here. So obviously we refer anything that's beyond our level out. But I still think it helps to, to keep your hand in the general urologic uh, arena. But don't forget, we've all gone through many years of medical school, many years of residency. So to end up being doctors who just prescribe testosterone or who just do prosthetics, I think is a little narrow. So I think you should always think about doing what's interesting to you and uh, just keeping abreast of the latest progress in all, in all the fields of urology that you can.
2: I definitely agree. We have a lot of smart people going into it. Today's match day. Every year when we look at the applicants, it's very difficult for me to screen them since they all have better board scores and better, more publications <laughs> and more anything than I yeah. ever did. So it's humiliating. I
0: definitely,
2: <laughs> I definitely think the future is very bright for us. Yeah. Um, what are some of the threats that you think that might be coming our way as urologists that we should be looking out for, we should prepare ourselves for?
0: oh, I don't know, I don't think there's threats. I mean, I think your practice will change as your environment changes and as biotech becomes more and more sophisticated. The idea would be to embrace all the new things that are on the horizon rather than avoid them and bury your head in the sand. My fellows are the ones that have to come to my aid 10 times a day with my computer, but I mean, (laughs) I still want to use it. But I think that the the biotech industry is going to be bigger and bigger, and you have to understand what's going on and incorporate that into your practice. I'm very excited right now about epigenetics. We're working with a group in Salt Lake on developing new tests for epigenetics and new ways to identify the patient who's going to or is not going to have sperm in the testis, in an asospermic patient, using epigenetics. And I think this is Extremely exciting again it's it's the new science of what we're going to be focusing, yeah, I think one
2: of the things that I admire most about you is that we are always seem to be at a cutting edge of a lot of breakthroughs, and that I think that's one of the most exciting part of being academic medicine is that people come to us with their ideas and their inventions, and they want our thoughts. They want us to be involved. And I think that's one of the luxuries of being academic medicine. We get that almost the first exposure to these new technology. And like you said, the key is to be open-minded, is to be flexible, is willing to welcome new ideas, not blow off. You know, this is how I always do things and I don't need your new whatever. So despite your Technological inefficiencies. I think you're always welcome and embrace new technology. I remember getting your first Apple laptop, and and it took a <laughs> while for us to get it set it up. But now you not know use it, right? Yes, yes. It's interesting. You know, now I'm in in almost in your shoes with trainees, and we tell them stories. But it's definitely do you tell them stories about me? You know, only good ones. Only good ones. <laughs> yeah. So and I I don't think we can move forward without knowing a little bit of what we came from and what was it like previously. So part of the purpose of the podcast is to get to hear your stories and what was it like. And I'm sure the people are gonna listen to this hundred years from now and say, oh my God, they use a microscope to find sperm. And (laughs) today we can just do a cheek swab and and use stem cells and now we have a baby, you know? Yeah, spit on
0: a slide. (laughs) What are your thoughts about stem cells? I mean, I think they're going to be really important in the future. I think people are rushing to use them now for things they shouldn't be using them for and uh, spending an awful lot of money for these quick cures. And, you know, there's no such thing as a quick cure, but I do think they're going to be important. I do think they make sense in certain circumstances, but in a lot of circumstances, they don't yet make sense, but I, I think they will with time, but they're here to stay. I mean, I think it's very important. Yeah, speaking of new technology,
2: recently I was approached to do whole organ preservation. And the idea is that they have done some models of freezing the entire ovary as a fertility preservation approach, such as a cancer patient. And that by the time they're done with chemotherapy, they can transplant, do the autologous transplant of the ovaries back to a woman's body where they can enable them to be able to potentially conceive naturally. And the idea is that maybe we can do similar things with testis. We can potentially preserve the entire testis instead of you and I save their sperm, save their testicular tissue, where they have to the employee-assisted reproductive technology in the future. If we can potentially preserve their entire testis and that through transplant, they can potentially conceive naturally. What are your thoughts about testicular transplant?
0: Well, I mean, you know, you'd have to have certain unique situations when it even makes sense. But I know there's been studies with ovaries when they freeze them and take them back. They don't necessarily have to put the ovaries back in their original position. They could use slices and put it under the skin and get egg maturation and extract the egg that way. And I would think with testicles, you don't have to transplant the whole testicle. You have to find a place to put it. But it's different because you know, the egg is one egg a month and you extract it and stimulate it and it goes on and you can you can utilize it in vitro. But with sperm, I mean, you need millions of sperm unless you're going to just always use ICSI, which you have to do for a lot of the frozen samples anyway. So, I mean, I, I think that transplanting frozen testicular tissue in the future is not unrealistic or unthinkable.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think these are all some of the scientific breakthrough or ideas that people are proposing, and we obviously want to keep pushing the boundary to advance the field.
0: Right. I especially think for children who are going to have to have chemotherapy, for preserving you know, this young testicular tissue and being able to mature it in vitro is something ultimately we'll be able to do. There's people working on it.
2: Yeah. So I think in the end, once the urology
0: part is over, what do you think you want to be doing? Probably traveling because I've taken a lot of time on my practice, uh, but it is somewhat confining in that, you know, you only tend to go to places where you're having meetings because you have to go to, you know, a fair number of meetings. And these places geographically are predetermined for you. So there's lots of places I've never been where I'd like to go. I don't think I'll ever be 100% retired, but certainly significantly retired so that I'll be able to still Do things that stimulate me intellectually, but don't require a full-time commitment. Have you ever thought
2: about if you were not a urologist or a famous urologist, uh, (laughs) what would you do as an alternate profession?
0: An alternate profession? Maybe, I don't know, own a restaurant, (laughs) something like that. With only Um, healthy food, the
2: prepackaged meals that you eat every day? No, 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 no,
0: no, good food, something like that.
2: Yeah, I heard an analogy of why surgeons like to cook because we like to work with knives, we like to work with our hands and- We like to eat. We like to eat (laughs) because we're always hungry. (laughs) Well, I want to take a quote from one of our favorite interviewer, Howard Stern. You know, you said it all, you've done it all and you have seen it all. And I want to thank you for being generous with your time and share your stories with us and i know that at least to me and all all your fellows we're forever grateful for what you have done for us and thank you for establishing the fellowship and the legacy and the family that we all created
0: yeah and thank you for taking the time to talk to me for this this hour it was very nice i enjoyed it let's stay in touch of course of course
1: With support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith savadoff Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz.
0: With support from Devante Delbrun.
1: Social media and PR
2: by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kennebru.
0: Thanks
1: again for listening and see you next week.